Good morning. Habakkuk has been a book that we've been studying over the course of these weeks together, and we're turning there once again. And as we're turning there, we can see so much of the life issues that we're confronted with on a daily basis in these verses. We're turning to the third chapter now in the book of Habakkuk, and again, to set the stage for us, there has been a unrest in the streets of Jerusalem in particular, Judah in general. The newscast most likely were giving you one example after another of violence out on the streets, and people who would love the Lord would be wondering, well, just where is God, and why is all this happening in our culture? And if you have watched the news, you might be asking yourself the same things. What we've found in these previous chapters is that Habakkuk is a very reflective man. And he looks at all around him, and as we have pointed out, he looks at the violence out on the streets. He looks at the threats upon the people of the land. And the questions we posed have gone something along these lines. God, do you care? That's what chapter 1 is all about as it relates to the injustices that people are experiencing. But then God breaks in with an answer, and so now Habakkuk hears that answer, and it unsettles him, and God's word has a way of unsettling us, doesn't it? And so he shifts. He shifts from the question of, God, do you care, in light of these injustices, to a a second question, but God, is this fair? He moves from the injustices of chapter 1 to the instruments that God chooses to use in chapter 2 to discipline the people of Judah. And sometimes God chooses to use instruments, means, methods in our lives that we would prefer that he would have found something else or someone else in order to be able to get us going in the direction we ought to be going. But God sovereignly chose to use, amazingly, Babylonians people from the region of modern-day Iraq, Iran, to be able to so discipline the people, they would be swept away from the land of Judah, 70 years in captivity. Habakkuk sees what's coming his way. And so he moves from the God, do you care, chapter 1, through the God, but is this fair, chapter 2, to God, it's time for prayer in chapter 3. What we noticed was that at the very end of chapter 2, there was this silencing. The way in which it's put, in fact, is, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. There's a wisdom in silencing ourselves before God. Because we drag such noisy hearts into our daily experiences that we need the quietness of the Spirit to overwhelm us. That God is sovereign in the midst of our silence. And so now Habakkuk has come to this conclusion God is in control. He does care. These instruments that he's using might not 
in my mind, seem fair, but he's established that I can't confuse God with life. Life is unfair, incredibly unfair. People die early. People get sick. People lose jobs. But we can't confuse God with life. God is merciful, and God is good. He wants us to know that. And so, in what will amount to be a three-part, third-chapter analysis over the course of the weeks to come, we look today at verses 1 through 7. It's a prayer of Habakkuk to the prophet, according to the Shigianoth, which was uh, some kind of musical connotation. This was to be put to song. And he cries out in his prayer, Now, O Lord, I have heard the report of you. In your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath. Remember mercy. God came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. And his splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood, measured the earth, he looked, shook the nations, and then the eternal mountains were scattered, and the everlasting hills sank low, and his were the everlasting ways. And I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. And somehow, someway, we got to now connect this to modern day life. Let's do it. So we look to our Lord in prayer. Our Father, what we want to do now is to embrace the immensity of who you are. You are beyond the parameters and the scope of our capacity to know you exhaustively. You are infinite, and we're finite. You are eternal. We're still incredibly temporal. You're unchangeable, and we change. We age. Our moods fluctuate. Our experiences vary. But in the course of time, you send Jesus into this world. And in your grace and goodness, you sent him via Bethlehem to Calvary to die for our sins. And each and every one of us here need to be able to have a sense of the awe to be filled with the sense of wonder as to who you are and what you've done. We bring that sense of awe and wonder in our worship experience with you into now the study of your word. 
Asking that in these minutes together, that again you would warm these hearts. That you would engage these minds. That you would shape these wills. Come here, Father, again to see Jesus and him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Walking down the hallway on a Wednesday night, getting ready for some evening appointments. As I approached the door, some students were standing outside the general office and smiling and looked up at me and said, well, happy October 21st. And I said, well, happy October 21st to you too. And they asked, do you know what day this is? And all of a sudden, pop culture, actually old pop culture, began to break in. Ah, I said, back to the future. And they're smiling. I guess a senior pastor's got to know something about pop culture. You see, there was a time when Marty and Dr. Brown from 1985 were launched in their DeLorean time capsule back into 1955, the Eisenhower years. And they're trying to address some issues and resolve some tensions. That was part one of the trilogy of that movie drama. But part two deals with being launched from 1985 on into October 21st of 2015. All kinds of predictions in that, including that the Chicago Cubs were going to win the World Series. My sons would have loved it, but last time I checked, the Royals are up three games to one. But what I saw out of that as I was walking to my office and jotted down a few thoughts before the appointments was that what you and I find is that there's this incredible tension of time. And God utilizes that tension because he takes the history as described in the Old Testament and creates not only a paradigm of what's to come, but he develops a plot line leading into that future event of Messiah's return. When I read the book of Revelation, what strikes me as it speaks of what's to come are how many Old Testament allusions that are found there, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. That book itself is a back to the future. So what do I want to do today and next Sunday as well, is to take a good hard look at behind us, before us, try to understand the tension with time and how truth connects it. And as we do so, we're going to draw two significant considerations that flow out of the first seven verses this morning. Let's dig in. First, when looking ahead, first look back, consider God's work and the revival we should seek. In verse 1, you and I are told that this is a prayer, a prayer of Habakkuk. Even though 
everything seems to appear going southward as far as he's concerned in the culture, generally as well as personally. There is a sovereign God who silences the peoples. He is in his holy temple. Habakkuk, like Job of old, is going to find himself no longer arguing with God, but in an incredible spiritual embrace, placing his faith and trust in the sovereign workings of God, which was exactly, as we noticed last week, what God wanted of Habakkuk and of you and of me. Because we were told in chapter 2, verse 4, the righteous shall live by his faith. And Paul, in Romans 1.17, would have said, Amen. Notice that this is a Shigianoth, and in verse 1, you're going to want to draw a line really down to the end of this chapter, the conclusion of this book, because this is meant for the choir master with stringed instruments, like the three men that were leading us this morning. And so what he wants us to do is to see this as a musical composition flowing out of the intense prayer life of Habakkuk made public for you and for me. And as he does so, he begins as you and I ought to when we feel as though this just does not seem fair. A chapter two moment. God. I mean, really now, do you care? A chapter one moment. What do you do in the light of all these tensions of life? Once again, Habakkuk informs you and me and models for you and me what our starting point ought to be. In reality, who our starting point ought to be? Oh, Lord, you can hear the sigh. You ever been there? I mean, my word. You've been battling with the Lord. Do you care? This just doesn't seem fair. Do you start with life or do you start with God? Your starting point will determine your outcome. And your starting point is going to have a lot to say with how you navigate the confusions of life. But something is now settled within the soul of Habakkuk at this point. We have got the silencing. And now what we find in this prayer moment is an O Lord, capital L-O-R-D, and when you see the O in front of the Lord, it's almost as if now he is taking everything within his lung capacity and now he is, he is exhaling. Everything has been so built up. What does he say next? I've heard the report. Some translations. I've heard the speech. In other words, he's talking about the word of God. Oh Lord, I've heard the report about you. And what I've found in exploring what you have communicated is this. No matter what my circumstances outwardly, and no matter how I feel inwardly, you are not indifferent. You are involved. And I make you, not my life, the starting point 
O Lord, he begins. And then adds, I have heard the report. Not unfair, but merciful. Heard the report. He buys in, do you? It was the Taiping Rebellion at the close in China of 1860 when the biographer tells us that Yu Yushan, a military officer in charge of the imperial forces in the Sea of Ningpo, bumped into a missionary who was communicating the word of God. Now Yu, we're told, was deeply interested, but other concerns were more pressing at the time. Isn't that life? But the seed of God's word was planted in his heart, but it lay dormant. Following the rebellion, the imperial army was disbanded, and you returned to civilian life. It was during this time he joined a Buddhist sect that was committed to reforming Buddhism. You can feel the tension in the wording. With a missionary zeal, he began traveling around the countryside, preaching against idols. And in place of the sin of idolatry, he offered the people a belief in an impersonal and an unknown supreme ruler of the heavens. And thousands of people, the biographer tells us, were turning away from idolatry. But during these years of offering this version of Buddhism, you could not escape the word of God communicated by the missionary in that region and wondered about the meaning of that report, that message. 1875. Fifteen years after hearing the missionary. A delay is not a denial, you know. He heard similar news from a different set of lips The same message, a missionary with the China Inland Mission, and you visited with him, began to study the word of God, before long put his faith and trust in Jesus. He then requested, after a period of time, to be able to travel and share this good news, saying, I have led hundreds on the wrong road. Now I want to lead them to the one who is the way, the truth, the life. Let me go. I live for this one who has been revealed in this word. Habakkuk now finds himself living for this one who has been revealed in this word. Oh Lord, I've heard the report. Now that's the word of God right there. But what I also want you to notice in verse 2 is that he not only refers to the word of God, he couples it with the work of God. O Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work, and he bridges this, he bookends this with another O Lord, adding, do I fear. Now you and I need to begin to develop a plot line of the way in which God has worked over the course of time. In the Bible, in history, in our lives. And now he explores how the work of God is defined and explained by the word of God. 
And what stands out, of course, in our minds was chapter 1, verse 5. Look among the nations, God had said, and see, wonder, and be astounded. Personalize this. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And a God is choosing in a future point in time, a Caesar Augustus, to come up with an idea of bringing people back to their home turf to register. And countless people are moving in all kinds of directions in the Roman Empire, including this one young couple moving in the direction of one small town known as Bethlehem. And if it was proclaimed out on the streets that this is a work of God. They would be looking at this macro design and trying to find the micro aspects of personalizing it and would find it hard to understand, let alone believe. A virgin carrying a child to a speck on the globe that is unmarked from the design of a Caesar Augustus. Oh, Lord, I have heard the report of you, said Habakkuk, and your work, O Lord, do I fear, because God does things that you nor I can fully comprehend, even if we're told. And here you have it. He's doing a work. He's doing a work, and it says, in the midst of the years... Revive it. Do it again, God. In the midst of the years, make it known. I was reading through a journal on antique cars. And there is this man who is very skilled at taking a car that was no longer operative and get it going again. Someone new on the scene wanting to work with the antiques asked the question, will it still work? I love the answer. It'll work all right. It just needs someone with skillful hands to revive it. Now what you've got, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, is someone who can, with skillful hands, take that sovereign strategy of his and revive it. Because the word revive here, taken from a Hebrew word, shavah, means literally to call to life. It's not talking so much about a personal revival in the heart at this point, as it is the sovereign revival of bringing to fruition all that the sovereign God has implemented, leading towards the second coming of Messiah. Do it again, God. In the midst of the years, revive it. Call it to life. In the midst of the years, make it known, you see. And now you're wise. Because as you look at God's work, You connect God's work with God's word. 
and the work is now connected to the word, and the word and the work come together in the in wrath, remember mercy, word, work, wrath. And at this point, what you and I see here is Habakkuk knows that God is going to be judging the Jewish people with the Babylonians who are going to sweep them away from the land of Judah. And sometimes it feels like God's disciplinary hand is heavy. And what you and I have got to do is to be able to call out to God, God, mercy is needed here. You ever been there? I mean, life is just getting so heavy. And what I desperately need is my sovereign God to provide some mercy. But it seems like Habakkuk's been reading Moses' writings. Because in chapter 34 and verse 5 of his Exodus, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, descended in the cloud, stood with him there, proclaimed the name of the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. That's what we need. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. And a Mary would nod her head in approval. Because after finding out that she's carrying Messiah within her womb, in her what's known as the Magnificat of chapter 1 of Luke, in verse 54, says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And this woman knows her scriptures, do you? So now, in the midst of the injustices you're experiencing in your life, when life just seems to weigh you down, and the questions are just flowing out of Habakkuk's lips, such as in chapter 1 in the opening verses, how long, O Lord? The question of waiting. And twice. And why, O Lord? As the question of why is coupled to the question of wait. Is that where you're at? You move from the do you care through the is this fair to time for prayer. And here now you've got a God who's merciful. Several weeks ago I was standing in Westminster Abbey. My son, who's a history major, graduated now. He and I were talking with Pam. And we were looking at various swords of kings through the ages. And we were thinking about this particular sword, the sword of Edward, the confessor. We had just moved from one setting, uh, the London Tower, over to there. And what stood out to me of the various swords that were being presented is that Edward, the confessor, his sword had no point. No point. It was the symbol of mercy. It was not used to fight with. It was used to minister with. God, I could use a little sword without a point moment here. 
You are the God of balance. I'm taking the word of God, pondering the work of God, now processing the wrath of God. But it says here, in wrath remember mercy. And now, my Lord, I'm using this as a basis in my own prayer life to appeal to you in my time of need. In the how long, O Lords, the wild Lords of life. You doing that? Now. It's a back to the future type thing. We've said when looking ahead, first look back, consider God's work. Are you doing that? Through the plot line of scriptures. In the revival we should seek, God, do it again. And now here's your second consideration in the midst of the challenges and the difficulties of life like the Habakkuk's of this world. When looking ahead, first look back. Number two, consider God's appearances and the review that we should undertake. We've got to review his appearances. Now you'll notice here in verse 3, there's a shift. And he's no longer spoken of as capital L-O-R-D. But instead here now, he is referred to as G-O-D. And the G-O-D here was the very same descriptive which was used in Job's conversations and debates with God. And just as Job had argued with God until Job was silenced by the sovereignty of God, and have you ever been debating God, even recently? So now, likewise, Habakkuk is being silenced in his arguments with God And here we find one of those God-breaks-in-type moments in his own personal experience. Now these are called theophanies. Theologians like these kinds of words, you know. It means God appeared. One of your classics is in Genesis chapter 18, verse 1. And now what he does, he looks at the various appearances of God in the plot line leading into the present. You ever done that? The God breaks in moments of life. There are two areas that are highly underlined by me. In verse 3, God came. In verse 6, he stood. Notice the wording in verse 3. God came from Taman. And you say, well, I haven't been there lately. Well, Taman is usually identified as the place of Edom. And you say, Gary, refresh my mind. Edom is found in many ways by Esau. Remember Jacob and Esau, the tensions of the past that are still present in the Middle East. So we've got a Jacob-Esau tension on our hands here because Mount Paran that you read about there in verse 3, that's Mount Sinai. It's just another name for it. And so now he's bridging the Jacob-Esau tension. He's bridging the tensions of Arab and Jew in the Middle East, past, present, future. 
He's furthermore helping us to see the pilgrimage of the Israelites out of Egypt into the promised land. This is relevant. God came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, and he wants you to catch your breath at this point with a selah, which musically speaking, it was a pause in the measure of music. You ever paused? Looked up and tried to figure out, what are you doing, God? He says to you, well, take a look back at what I've done in the past and allow it to help you to understand the present. It's a back to the future moment, you know. So there you are, and you're looking back, and as you're looking back at these theophanies, you realize that there is a Mount Sinai poetic expression here, and the poetry and the prophecy are all tied together. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Do you remember the story of Moses coming down from Mount Sinai? And how he looked, and how his face was so illumined. His brightness was like the light rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. You might want to write off to the side, Exodus 34, verse 29, 30 there. Because as Deuteronomy 33, verse 2 puts it, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them in Zaya. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came with thousands of saints, and from his right hand went a fiery law for them. And God is guiding, and God is directing, and God is revealing his glory. And now you and I begin to reflect upon the glory of God. God came. And as God came, he led his people through their wilderness experience. And now in the injustices that you might be experiencing in life, the how long, O Lord, and the why, O Lord, you grab hold of what God has done in the past and you transport it into the issues you're confronting in the present. And you can see that as God guided his people through their wilderness moments then, he's guiding you through your wilderness moment. Even right now. He cares for you. He's there for you in the midst of it all. Now, it was September 1864. General Grant traveled out to the Shenandoah Valley. He was going to be talking with Phil Sheridan. General Sheridan, he wanted Sheridan to go back on the offensive against the Confederates. Grant and Sheridan paced back and forth in a field near Sheridan's headquarters discussing the matter, its logistics, and so on. There's this sergeant. He's lounging against a rail fence, watching. Buddy comes near. And the sergeant jerked his thumb at the duel and announced, That's Grant. General Grant. And then somewhat reflectively he added this. I hate to see that old guy around. Whenever that old guy is around, there's sure to be a big fight on hand. What Habakkuk is doing at this point is he's prepping you for a big, big fight on hand. Because what he is doing is that he's taking the stories of the past, relating it to the present, 
and in a back-to-the-future moment, allowing us to see where this will head, as we'll note next week, where in verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed Hebrew word, Messiah. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked. Ring a bell? Genesis 3.15. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah wants you to pause there. It's back to the future. He wants you to take all of this and say, God is making sense out of all the issues of life. And the past and the present are making a back to the future reality for you. And for me, his ways were the everlasting ways. So you get now to that he stood. You drew a line back to the he came. God came in three. Now in verse six, he stood. And we find that God at this point has pulled out his yard stick. He's measuring the earth. He created it. He can do it. And then we are told he looked and shook the nations. It's a directive act. It's a foretaste of what is to come in that day of Armageddon. He's taken measure. He's taken stock. And you move then in verses 3 down through verse 5 with the God came, which deals with God's work nationally, Israel to verses 6 and 7 where God is working internationally. And now look at what is happening in the Middle East right now, a foretaste of all that is still to come. Verse 6, he stood, measured the earth, looked, shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. Poetic prophecy. Back to the future. His were the everlasting ways. And now, in verse 7, what Habakkuk does for you and what Habakkuk does for me is that he's saying, do you need a paradigm? Do you need an example of what those final days will be like? You want another back to the future moment? You said to yourself, as we've been studying this, the book of Revelation is filled with Old Testament allusions, imagery, events, all of which informs us of what is to come. And now Habakkuk takes a story out of the book of Judges, not one, but two. And verse 7 says, I saw, I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. And you say, but Gary, who are, who's Cushan? You might want to write off to the side of verse 7, Judges 3, verses 8 through 11, and check it out on your own. Because Cushan was the first oppressor to rise up against Israel after she entered the promised land. And if you go in history to 1948, same thing happened. And as you look at the tensions right now, same thing's happening. And you're seeing a back to the future moment here. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. 
And then he transports you to the days of Gideon. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. That's Judges chapter 7, verse 13. They were invaders of the land of Israel. And Gideon was raised up by God. And Gideon was used by God to defend Israel. And Midian collapsed. And you look at that. And now you say, am I back to the future studies of God's word? I'm beginning to get it. That when I see injustices, when I'm experiencing confusion, when I am finding myself asking why in the midst of the wait, God breaks in. And in chapter 2, verse 4, the righteous shall live by his faith. Have you been declared righteous by God? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Because if you have, you're able to see how all of this fits together globally and yet personally. Historically and at the same time contemporarily. That this God of the universe is in control and he uses all of this. And so the student is standing there smiling Happy October 21st, she says, as her buddy joins in. I nod my head. It's a back to the future moment. And you look at this, and you know that the past, the present, and the future are all present tense in the eyes of your God. Let's stand together. We need to be able to create elastic souls, to be able to be stretched, to comprehend to the degree capable of the infinite, eternal, unchangeable God who in his sovereign purposes brought Jesus in this world to die for our sins. Each of us is called in the midst of life's weights in the midst of life's wise, to put our faith and trust in him alone. The righteous shall live by his or her faith. Speak to that hard father that's struggling with the whole issue of faith in the midst of this weight, in the flurry of the wise. Stir that heart, yet quiet that soul. And allow them to be able to see that the sovereign God who can create such an incredible plot line that leads to Jesus is not done yet. That Christ will return. That all this will be put in place. And you'll receive the glory. From our hearts and from our lips now, may you receive the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.